Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the future of biotech. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm today's host, Alok Tai. I'm the VP of Life Sciences at Ignite, and we're a secure content platform focused on key global industries. Hi, I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, the co-host of Biotech 2050. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a technology platform where we're organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise in order to accelerate and de-risk the development of new therapeutics. I'm very excited to welcome Chris Murray, who's the Senior Vice President of Technical Operations at Blueprint Medicines. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thank you. As a starting point, what we generally like to do is just hand it off to you and uh, so that you can provide a bit of intro to yourself, uh, how you got into biotech and, and your career trajectory to date. Thank you. I'm currently at Blueprint Medicines. I've been there for a couple of years and um, been in the industry almost 30 years. I started out uh, you know, as a young chemist coming out of a postdoc and I was in Boulder, Colorado and wanted to stay there. It's a beautiful location and started working for a small biotech called Hauser Chemical Research. It was a public company at that time and, and our claim to fame was uh, we were working on Taxol. So mm-hmm. we were isolating uh, this brand new molecule, exciting chemotherapy for oncology from the bark of the Pacific yew tree. So it's a pretty crazy story. And I won't go into all the details, but I um, was in process development and manufacturing, helping bring that to, first of all, the National Cancer Institute and then BMS, uh, Bristol-Myers Squibb. Uh, licensed it from the government, and uh, they commercialized the product, and we were their supplier for a number of years. It was a really exciting time and um, and learned a lot in that job and was there about 10 years. And uh, I think the big learning from all of that was it's a business, and people in the company and the company need to be able to understand what it costs to develop a drug, but they need to pay attention to all of the aspects, the regulatory aspects, the quality, and the technical. And so that was a great learning experience for me and and a good start to the career. I moved on to a small biotech in the region for a few years, and in uh, 2004 moved to the Boston area and worked for um, Ariad Pharmaceuticals, and it was uh, an exciting time at Ariad as well. We had a lot of ups and downs, but over 12 years, commercialized three products, all in oncology. Much of my career, for one reason or another, has been on oncology products. So I'm familiar with the space, understand at least the clinical trial aspects and the requirements from a CMC. And we were purchased by Takeda in uh, 2017. I took a few months off and then moved to Blueprint, like I said, almost two years ago. And just a quick question, what initially drew you to, to biotech? You know, I kind of fell into it. Like, like I said, I was just looking for a job, yeah. but I think the real step into biotech was moving to the Boston area. I made a decision. It was a personal decision to move closer to family. I wanted to be in the Boston area. You could just feel the energy in Cambridge yeah. and in Central Square at that time. And uh, I think it was an exciting time for biotech in the early 2000s. And it hasn't stopped. Yeah. It just keeps uh, compounding. There's something to say about the, the ecosystem that exists here, right? Exactly. The the pace of innovation in that uh, melting pot that continues to get stirred up and grow. Yeah, and challenging each other. It is is really an ecosystem. Companies trying to outdo each other in one way or another, but mostly just drawing talent and ideas and concepts, I guess. So, you know, in that regard, we'd love to learn a little bit more about Blueprint specifically. Obviously, you guys have had some recent successes, which we hope we can hear Mm -hmm. more about, but we'd love to get maybe a sense of its origins some of the technology and the platforms that underpin the organization, as well as some of the programs that you guys are really excited about working on and launching in the coming years. Blueprint was started as a TRV company, Third Rock Ventures, and became public, I think, about five years ago. 
Originally, the concept was to develop kinase medicines that were highly selective and had fewer side effects. And the reason that kinases were uh, fertile ground for that was that much was known already about the kinome, you know, the general structures of these proteins, these targets, and how they operated. And it would seem like, a, I think it was at the time, a, an opportunity to build a more rational approach to developing kinase inhibitors. And some of the ideas came from Alexis Borsi, of course, and he uh, you know, was part of that TRV group that founded the company. But a, another key element of it was how do you do it more efficiently? And so the idea was to build a library that had that was based on structural elements of, across all of the kinases and fragments that you could put together in a variety of different ways. So there was an upfront investment in building this library. And I think that took a lot of will to spend those first few years building that library as you're building a very small company with the biology and the biochemistry and the other, other pieces that you would need to um, you know, fully flesh out the discovery and then ultimately development. That's what they did. And uh, I think the result was we have several compounds that have been advanced into the clinic at this point and several more to come. Um, we recently had an approved product uh, just last week mm-hmm. at this point. Um, is, Congratulations, uh, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. Is uh, Avapritinib or Avakit. And during this time that I've been there, the company's grown from approximately 120 people to now we're over 380. Uh, mm-hmm. So we've added the other pieces to the company, the commercial group and uh, pharmacovigilance, all the things that you really need to commercialize and then keep a product on the market and maintain that. Over the last couple of years, you guys seem to have been on, on quite a tear. And what have you realized in terms of how you were able to build some of that momentum? And then now on the other side of having a commercial product, what are some of the challenges or, or how are you thinking about maintaining that momentum over time? So building the momentum, I, I have to say I feel sometimes like I stepped onto a, you know, an already speeding train. <laughs> um, you know, and and I, like I said, I've only been there two years and, it was, and it's only accelerated since then. I would say the momentum was built primarily on two things, and other people may have other ideas, but I think the culture was something that right from the start was a big focus of the founders and has been maintained uh, at the senior executive level, but throughout the company, and it's celebrated. And then the other aspect that was developed was just the excitement about science. We have a science seminar every week, and since I got there, it it was like sitting in a chair and having your hair just blown back. I learned more biology in the past two years than the previous 20. <laughs> and I'm a chemist, and I have an interest in this area, but I know there's non-chemists or non-scientists that feel the same way. And so I think that celebration of science and that real engagement or commitment to the core values, and not just uh, during core values week, but all the time, <laughs> has really been the big part of the momentum and the big part of my, my satisfaction since I joined Blueprint because it's something I was looking for all my career. I didn't find other at other organizations. I had that excitement, you know, around around the chemistry or the, the science that we were doing at any one of my organizations and certain friends and colleagues that I really enjoyed working with, but not that sort of full culture. And so when I found it, and now that I found it, I'm, I'm uh, really excited about being part of it. I want to sort of just maybe follow up on one topic there around culture, perhaps more broadly within the industry, which is having seen both biotech and technology companies especially among startups, Rahul, maybe you'd agree that in technology, there is a very large emphasis on culture at the initial stages of a business. I don't see that same level of commitment or prioritization of company culture in the biotechnology industry. And I kind of feel like Blueprint's somewhat unique in that regard. Why do you think that is? I think it, it comes from the leadership. I mean, still, 
you know, the original founders, I think, had that kind of excitement. And I don't have maybe as broad a picture into, you know, what you're articulating. In Boulder, there was quite a bit of that back in the 90s when I was when I was there. And I felt some of the companies that were around at that time, like Synergen and Amgen and, mm-hmm. and uh, Somatogen, they, that was very much a part of the, their culture as well. Right. But I think maybe uh, perhaps it's the money, perhaps it's the pressure to succeed. I don't have any true answers on that one other than other than I like what I see. Mm-hmm. I like what I feel at the company. And um, I think it is also, I think, believe, I believe TRB has a, you know, an element of this. This yeah. is a big part of the companies that they've started. Mm-hmm. I think Agios is a company that you know, has a lot of these same elements. Right. And, and when you're hiring for new roles, what do you look for in terms of, you know, is this person going to be, let's say, culturally additive? What are some of the things that perhaps when you're assessing candidates, you, you personally or as a team that you look for? You know, we, we actually do a lot of behavioral um, recruiting. I mean, so we give assignments to people to assess different candidates, and that's part of it. I think another part of it is, you know, being very clear on what are the most important few elements that you're looking for in that candidate. And, for example, I, for me, it's a supply chain position that I'm trying to fill right now, a senior <laughs> leader, and I've, I've been very candid and very open with all the candidates and with my interview team that this is somebody that needs to be able to, you know, easily form relationships with other people and, and values that and does it as a matter of course hmm. and maintains those relationships. And because, it, you know, supply chain is such a central role in the organization and they need to be able to rely on other people and they need to be able to serve other people and think about it that way. Hmm. I think another element is, in, I've only worked in small companies, well, companies own, you know, a thousand people or less. I think Ariad was the largest company at one time. It was almost 800 people yeah. globally. And I'm looking for somebody that thinks like an entrepreneur all the time. You know, is like is, is interested in that bottom line. You know, basically has a PNL kind of close to them. <laughs> you know, they're looking at it as you know, as every day is like, yeah, how have I done here? If I added value, or, or, or you know, is this you know a net zero, or is this a loss? Mm-hmm. And so, it, those are two key aspects. I think. I think the third is just, you know, this is an intangible thing to try to measure, particularly in leaders, but um, I think we try to do it throughout the organization as somebody that makes other people better. And, you know, through being friendly, challenging them, encouraging them, you know, all of the things that you know, you know it when you see it, but it's, a, it's hard to put just a few words around it. It's that ability to make someone comfortable at the same time, make them on the edge of uncomfortable by challenging them. <laughs> so that lens... Obviously, the biotech market, uh, especially in Boston, is quite competitive. How do you think about that broader ecosystem that does support, whether it's tech ops or the broader organization, namely that you have teams and personnel you're trying to bring in internally, but to your point earlier, you have a broad distributed network of collaborators, whether it's CMOs or consultants or partners. How do you think about culture in that broader sense? Because your effective footprint is substantially larger and spans multiple organizations. How does that play into your leadership and, and management style? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think the, you know, the aspirational view is to treat a lot of our you know, contract manufacturing organizations and certainly the people we know in there as if they are an extension of us. Mm-hmm. Having worked early in my career in a contract manufacturing organization, you know, I think I can do that fairly naturally right. because I understand their challenges, I understand their problems, I understand their bottom line, I, I know their profitability and their, their risk profile is not anywhere near ours. Nonetheless, their margin for error is less. Mm-hmm. 
So we do different things. For example, we celebrated last week. We had a, a gentleman that was on site at one of our manufacturers overseas, and you know he, we brought in cupcakes and champagne and <laughs> celebrated the launch. It was their first launch as well, and so it was. Oh. I think it was an exciting you know time for them, and you have to celebrate success. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just part of it, you know. And engage. I think there there also has to be an organized relationship management program that both parties are really investing in. Mm-hmm and it has to have a cadence to it it has to have key elements of key performance indicators but also once again having fun mm-hmm. you have to, to make it not painful that's what you're looking for you're always selling right you're even <laughs> if you're on the sponsor side you're always selling your company to right to your uh, your contract organization yeah I'm curious, you know, Rahul, given your experience, obviously from managing consultants from a clinical standpoint, which I'd imagine maybe extends to other steps of the drug development process. How do you think about the cultural piece and the management and the leadership of those folks? Chris obviously sort of talked about it from an internal company standpoint and now a contract partner standpoint. How do you think about it from a consulting standpoint? How does that complement your experience so far? Yeah, I think managing consultants can be quite a bit more challenging than managing full-time folks because they're not they're not front and center right they're, they don't sit next to you you have to be quite disciplined about how you communicate with them what the setting expectations etc cetera, etc cetera. and i think generally we as an industry i think most industries are not great at leveraging consultants in order to let's say accelerate development i, I think it's i think it's a challenge and We've seen now we've been exposed to hundreds of companies at Clora, and everyone does it a bit differently. And something we're working on is just you know best practices so that when you do onboard a consultant, here is what we have seen work, especially as we're thinking about remote consultants and the growth of virtual companies and, and such. I think it's, it's something where we as an industry certainly need to level up. And that's why oftentimes companies fall back to, hey, no, we, we want a consultant in-house five days a week is to compensate for perhaps some of the deficiencies organizationally around managing consultants and having process in place. I totally agree. I'm sure we have opportunities as an organization at Blueprint to improve in some of those things. I've had great successes with certain consultants and major failures with others. And I think it generally came down to how much time I could spend on you know, helping them do their job to help me. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's so interesting. I think mean, this comes back to the maybe an earlier topic that we opined about, which is why the industry doesn't value culture. And I think a part of it is the way we work uh, with each other, I think, is derived from how we all went to school, especially in graduate school, right, as PhD students. And I think it's safe to say, uh, and I probably don't think this is a, st- a startling statement for anybody, is that academic groups don't value culture. You know, it's uh, someone of an army of one mentality. It's a make or break, sink or swim, right, type attitude. Competitive, too. Right, competitive, highly competitive. And I think you get pieces that, that translate into the industrial equivalents, right, of what we do in academia. So I'm curious, you know, at least in Blueprint's case, let's say in your organization in TechOps, we don't need any of the deep details, but give us a sense of what that footprint looks like. So your team is how big, how many partners do you work with, how many consultants do you, are you active with, I'd love to just understand that because I'd love, I think that might help tie together this concept of leadership, not only within your organization, but also outside it. Sure. Because sure. especially in the case of a virtual company or at least a company that doesn't have in-house manufacturing, your external footprint is just as important as the folks inside, right? Right. Right. So uh, quite a bit to say about all that. I'll try <laughs> yeah, to yeah. lay it out in, a, in an organized fashion. Yeah. So internally, TechOps is approximately 30 people. Mm-hmm. We do have some open positions trying to fill 
supply chain in particular. <laughs> um, and we, uh, we partner very closely with our colleagues in quality, mm-hmm. yeah, GMP quality, and as well as uh, our colleagues in regulatory CMC. I mean, to the point of where we have quarterly meetings, we get everybody together. That's pretty rare in my experience. I mean, it's often a, a silo around quality mm-hmm. or around tech ops, and, and it's uh, sometimes you know, collaborative but not top to bottom. We're trying to keep that collaboration going. So we have off-site meetings or you know, team-building events, and those have been going on for in the past year. And I think that's been highly successful. Mike Bauer is the leader of quality. Johnny Vargas in my, in my organization, he's the head of farm side manufacturing. Mm-hmm. And Ben Mohiman is the, the head of uh, Reg CMC. And I think we've done a nice job of bringing everybody together. You know, it's a work in progress. But the cultural elements within tech ops, you know, that interaction, you know, there's always a tension between productivity and, you might say, enjoyment of the job. Mm-hmm. I guess I feel like you know we follow the science, just like just like every one other organization. Part part of our organization is we have to develop data that we can put in front of regulatory authorities. But more than that, it's it's manufacturing. It's manufacturing science. The last thing anyone wants is failures in a very expensive or very critical mm-hmm. manufacturing batch. And so you know we have enough experience in our team that most of the time I'm watching it like a well-oiled machine because people know what failure looks like and they're avoiding that. Um, we spend enough time with failure mode analysis and uh, running DOE studies and things like that that people know what when we have that problem, we have an investigation or we have a out of specification, how much extra work that is mm-hmm. and how damaging that could be to our company, but also can put a patient at risk. Mm-hmm. And so we've gotten through some tough th- times in the past couple of years, and I'm sure there were even tougher ones before I got there. And so our general, I think, posture culturally, but also in, in terms of how we work, is let's make this work. Let's keep keep working the problem, keep supporting each other, challenge each other at the right level, keep it professional. And I think that is a leadership responsibility. Mm-hmm. Put that in front of people, demonstrate how to do that. And when you don't, when you have a leader that doesn't do it, don't be afraid of making that change because there's nothing <laughs> more damaging or, mm-hmm. or uh, ultimately degrade an organization than a leader that doesn't live by the rules. Yeah, I've often felt that manufacturing has a has a very tough role because you tend to be quite unheralded within the organization because your role is is fundamental. Everyone thinks that you're going to succeed, and there's a disproportionate response when there's something some negative outcome, and you know, you're, uh, you get a lot of flack for that, but never anything for like things running smoothly, uh, yeah. which is certainly the expectation. So it's a I can imagine it's quite a tough role to be in across biotech. Yeah, I don't think I can go there. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's uh, it's actually I'm I try to frame it. It's a privilege to do this yeah. this kind of work. And I mentioned it to our team just recently on our CMC meetings. Was I worked on Taxol early in my career, and it was just one of the most rewarding experiences. And the response rate for ovarian cancer at that time, refractory ovarian cancer, might have been twenty percent. Mm-hmm. You know, and our drug was approved last week and has a eighty-five percent overall response rate. Wow. It, we've come a long way as an industry, and, and the science is just getting better and better, and the medicines are getting better and more selective. So that's a, that's a huge win for everybody. Just a, one more point on, on talent. Any general reflections on the Boston ecosystem around talent and either some of the challenges that you're facing right now or any learnings that you've had that you'd like to share with the listeners? I think attracting talent, I mean, it's a momentum kind of thing. When your organization is doing well, you'll... You know, you'll be able to recruit better, of yeah. course. And 
you know, there's ups and downs, I think, in the availability of talent as some organizations come and go. There's been a lot of rationalization in the industry, especially in Boston, and I think that's created opportunities. I think that's going to keep going. You know, there's going to be, you know, when Ariad was, for example, purchased, uh, very few people ended up staying at Takeda. It was yeah. a real boon for at least some of our neighbors and, you know, some of the, some of the folks around Cambridge and uh, highly talented people. And also several companies have come out of folks that left Ariad. You know, some doing very well at this point. And that, that is, it's just this regeneration. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's one of the, the coolest parts of uh, the biotech industry in, in the Boston area and Cambridge area is that there's continual sort of wellspring of new opportunity and new thoughts, new, new science and uh, energy, entrepreneurial energy, to start, mm-hmm. to start new things. So, so as, a, as we look towards the future of biotech, particularly from a, from a manufacturing or technical operations lens, would love to hear your thoughts on what are particular challenges that you've been facing over the last couple of years, or even think of it from the lens of uh, there's hundreds of new companies that are being formed annually. You know, what are problems that you feel that are still unaddressed uh, and you think are, are holding uh, us in biotech back. That's that's a good one. Challenges for us have been, I think, finding the right partners. And some of that's just, you know, in the moment. Somebody might be a good partner today, and two years from now they may not. Either they're purchased or they lose some, some talent of their own. That's a continual thing. That's an evolving and organic aspect of our business that we need to stay on top of all the time and invest in. That's relationship management, staying on top of where these companies are going and and working for us, I think working with a scale of company that's large enough that they're not just going to be swallowed up easily, uh-huh. but also small enough so they still have that, you know, that care and and, uh, and the high, high, high yeah. touch and hunger that, oh. that um, I think is required. We we go to our, our CMOs and, and give presentations on the clinical data. Johnny mm-hmm. Varga and our group's really good at that. And uh, <laughs> he's, uh, you know, he's very, very well loved at these organizations just because he's providing the message and telling them, you know, what their work is doing and how it's translating into benefit for patients. So that goes a long way. But the challenge, I think, will be um, also in quality. It's uh, patient safety in terms of making product that meets all of the criteria that, you know, that, that are needed for, you know, for lease and, and, and into the clinic and ultimately into the market. So quality management systems at, at the different organizations, including ours, are, you know, are not always uniform. Some companies get it right. Some requires a tremendous amount of, I might say, pressure and, and extra, extra work. Yeah. So that's probably, I'd say those are our two biggest challenges right now and have been for some time. Across the industry, I think that, you know, I can double down on the quality management systems. I, I think there's a real opportunity for standardization. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure exactly how that can occur, whether it's coming from regulatory bodies or industry groups like pharma or, or ISPE or something like that. But it's... There's a real need for making this easier and, and for companies not having to reinvent it over and over and mm-hmm. over again. And, you know, the, the playbook's kind of there, but it's a little fuzzy. Mm-hmm. And if you squint, you might be able to see it. But <laughs> most of the time, you have to just start over. And there's a lot of opportunity there. And I think also a lot of opportunity in just development, um, you know, the stages of development, what's needed. If people want to move fast, you're going to have to invest early. Mm-hmm. So the worst thing possible is to get into the clinic and then, and just have to pause because, you know, you need to go back and do a process development study to understand <laughs> why your impurity profile doesn't meet, you know, meet specification. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
you know, in that circumstance, uh, you know, we've obviously offline have talked about data and, and analytics and uh, automation. And there's, you know, something obviously Rahul and I have also on the podcast previously have opined about is how there's so much awesome technology and capability that exists, at least outside the industry. When you think about that cadre of everything from AI to natural language processing to uh, cloud computing, where do you see some of the opportunities for said technologies in some of these to address some of these challenges, at least from a manufacturing and tech ops standpoint? So I, I think there's a lot of opportunity around AI and language learning. The documentation for CMC and also many other areas is so heavy, mm-hmm. um, and I don't think it's done efficiently. Yet it's so important. I mean, we're still trying to you know encourage our scientists to finish reports and you know, get all the data in there and. It just seems like there's an opportunity for building a better process for loading the data right from directly from limbs, for example, and into a report that people can edit rather than de novo generate. Mm-hmm. And as good as we are at it, I think our CMOs have a order of magnitude more yeah. <laughs> improvement to make because they're you know they're just not they're not essentially paid for reports often, mm-hmm. and uh, something that we build right into our contracts even. So I think that documentation is not going to go away. There mm-hmm. has to be, you know, something that you can really lean on and defend and provides the opportunity for a living document, for example, that, that you, you know, as you get more information is just accumulated. But there certainly is for, there's formats that I think that people have not taken the time to, to, to improve there. And so it's not a real exciting topic, but I think it's something that could tremendously enhance GMP manufacturing of mm-hmm. pharmaceuticals. And as we go more globally, uh-huh. I think, you know, we have an opportunity, you know, in the West to be able to show, you know, this is the way it really needs to be done. Uh-huh. And I would say this is for a generic compound as mm-hmm. much as it is, or even more than, you know, perhaps than a new compound, a new chemical entity, because these uh, generic APIs are being made in, in ways that uh, we're, we're hearing about nitrosamines and other impurities, that it's easy to get off the track. Uh-huh. And if, but if there's a common standardized way of developing and it's not just a batch record but it's the underlying Data, yeah. rationale for the science or the, the chemistry in this case then i think you'll end up with better products mm-hmm. i think that's critical and I, I i think it's relatively low-hanging fruit um just not sure where it's going to come from industry groups or regulatory authorities right or just uh, entrepreneurs you know building a oh. platform to, to to sell to people you know, i think one of the interesting quotes i always heard from uh, a very well-known cio in the in the farm industry is that Standards don't come from organizations. Standards are set based on usage. So it's whatever the industry does becomes a standard, Mm -hmm. right? And so I think uh, to some extent, it's hopefully more folks who are like-minded like you to say, hey, let's start to think about what the benefits are for us to not have to worry about rewriting SOPs across the board, but let's redivert that energy to more value-added activities. Right. Yeah, exactly. I, I I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Mm. And, and just think about you know the the opportunity costs of delays in any sort of development because we as an industry haven't done a great job to date about sharing mm-hmm. mistakes across the right. industry. I, I think you know I think there's so much room for improvement there. Where I, I imagine it'll probably come from some entrepreneur that that has a tech background or something like that 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 starts to see how archaic our industry can be in, in these aspects and, and, and doing something about it. But um, yeah, I, mean, I think just the driving force for all of us has to be, you know, getting new therapeutics to market faster and, and whatever it takes, because there's obviously new treatment modalities, et cetera, et cetera. But all the, there's all this 
um, gunk around batch record reviews, SOP development, et cetera, et cetera, that there's, there's, I, I agree there's so much low-hanging fruit there. You know, I think the last topic here that I'd love to just maybe get some thoughts from you on uh, is a comment you made earlier about patient safety. Obviously, from a manufacturing standpoint, there's uh, a lot of challenges with not only tech transfer, but then even scale up, right? From GLP, if you're doing talks versus if you're sort of doing commercial supply. What have you sort of been seeing in terms of a key uh, set of trends and uh, thought processes related to patient safety? And how should we be recentering around that as an industry? One of the things that I think is helpful, and this is coming from a smaller biotech view, and so over the past decade, the FDA has really doubled down, really focusing on GCP. Mm-hmm. And this might sound like a roundabout way to answer the question, but in a smaller company, you know, I have, through my colleagues, have much more visibility to that. And I think it's integrated in the inspections that are occurring at, at the biotech companies as well. And so I think that awareness is, is a big part of it. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, they're talking about, you know, how they're dosing the patient and, and, and how all the records they have to keep around the clinical aspects of this. So I think it just creates a you know, sort of fullness of the awareness of, of, of what, what is important in terms of making even just clinical medicines. And it's not just clinical medicine. Making clinical medicines that um, you know, are used to understand the, the efficacy and the safety of the drug. But in terms of anything new, I mean, most of these tests and most of these ideas have been around for quite some time. I think it's just being, maybe it's the expectations of regulatory authorities, I think, have become much more clear from, you might say, the, the actions that have been taken in certain companies that aren't, aren't following good GMP or aren't following yeah. mm-hmm. you know, their control strategies as, as outlined mm-hmm. or following their, their SOPs. It's mostly just the general awareness but I think that can be quickly lost. And so how do you, how do you codify that or how do, you, how do you make that more solid and less amorphous for the industry? I, I don't really have an answer there yet. Mm. I believe it's still back in that you know, standardization. I think there's a real opportunity for industry groups to, to step forward and lead on that. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of pressure on farm industry, but this should be one that should be you know, really relatively no easy to promote and to get going. Mm. Right. Well, you know, it certainly sounds like low-hanging fruit in that we see industry standards bodies in other domains, right, set templates. And, you know, since Rahul and I both come from sort of the tech startup world, you know, there's Y Combinator, for example, does a lot Mm -hmm. to be able to help standardize documents around incorporating a company, around doing a seed financing. Companies used to spend tens of thousands of dollars with only marginally more in the bank, Mm -hmm. right, Mm -hmm. to be able to get this stuff done. And they're saying, you know what, the value's not here. The value's in the strategic advice, uh, if you're a lawyer, for example, right? I always get the feeling that maybe there's an analogy between what you're articulating in terms of QMS and other types of documentation and the practice of drug development as a whole. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And maybe this, maybe it exists out there and I'm just not aware. No, I don't think it does. <laughs> well, you know, hopefully maybe uh, if this podcast reaches the right, right. engineer, you know, yeah. he or she will hear it, yeah. software engineer, and they'll uh, realize that you know, working on advertising might not be yeah. for them, and they could actually redirect that effort to help uh, <laughs> folks like Chris and his team of 30 uh, not have to be stuck in paperwork all day. <laughs> I hope you guys don't do paper signatures still. No, we've moved to an EQMS. Oh. In fact, I have to finish my training. Oh, okay. <laughs> don't, don't tell Mike, though. Okay. <laughs>
Awesome. Well, Chris, uh, thank you so much for, for taking the time to, to join us today. This was a, a great conversation and, and wishing you and the rest of the team at Blueprint continued success, which uh, sounds like a very bu busy year ahead. Yeah. Thanks, Rob. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, and Alok Tai. It's produced by Jean Merlane, edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.